there are a lot of great stories out there on television. A lot people talk about a lot. Um, uh, heard about Succession. Heard about the the Last of Us. Um, you know, Twilight for some reason. Um, not really sure. But one storyline that really has gripped uh, many, including my family, and we've brought it into this world before, is a uh, storyline called This Is Us. Um, mother and father, Rebecca Jack Pearson, um, pregnant with triplets, go to the hospital to deliver. Uh, two of the children survive, one perishes in childbirth. But it so happens that on that same day, another child is brought um, from the fire station into the hospital to be cared for. And, and as the father of the family says, we were planning to come home from this hospital with three children. We're going to come home from this hospital with three children. And so then you follow that story's life, that's that family's story throughout their life up into their the children are 40. They, they lose their father along the way, dies in a fire. And then towards the end of the series, they're losing their mother, who is uh, suffering from Alzheimer's. And her vibrancy and her <clears throat> elegance is now uh, slowly shriveling and the course of the disease is beginning to accelerate. And as she becomes aware of that, she realizes she needs to have a talk. And here is that moment where she gathers her children. My last request is um, less a request and more of a demand, actually. Um, this disease is a real bastard. And it, it's set me on a road that's going to have a lot of ugly twists and turns, and I'm afraid it's going to be a lot harder on all of you than it will be on me, and I hate knowing that. I hate it. But what I don't want, I don't want every holiday for the camera to be focused on me. So I need you all to hear my voice right now, your mother's voice with all of her faculties. You will not make your life smaller because of me. This thing that's happening to me will not be the thing that holds you back. So take risks. Make the big moves, even if they're small moves. Forge ahead with your lives in any and every direction that moves you. I'm your mother, and I'm sick. And I'm asking you to be fearless. And if that seems like a tall order, well, guess what? It is. But the only acceptable response is a resounding yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Who of us wouldn't want to be the parent to be able to say some things when you can? Uh, the darkness is about to descend on her, and she knows it, and she wants to be able to say things that are clear and resounding. And she says, I want you to shift the focus off of me, notwithstanding what I'm facing, and I would like you to be unafraid. It's a good thing. It's what a good mother would want to do for her children insofar as she is capable of doing so. I, I bring that story to our attention for its own poignancy, but to suggest to you that it has a lot of resonance with where we're talking about today. For those of you that have not been with us, we have wondered aloud, what does it mean when the creed says, I believe in the Holy Spirit? Uh, you can say, I believe in wave-particle duality, 
but I bet it doesn't affect your everyday existence. And what I fear for my own heart and for yours is that you and I can say in the creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit, and it has not a whit of a difference in the way you live. We're trying to recover that. The series is an act of repentance on my part, our part. Where we are in that series is listening to Jesus in what's known as the upper room discourse between John 13 and John 17, which is an extended conversation between him and his disciples. And he's going to tell them a lot about the Holy Spirit, but it is not as if he is standing behind a podium giving a lecture. He is sitting around a table with his family, the one who are his friends. And he, like Rebecca, is there to speak poignantly that as Rebecca, he himself is trying to explain to them, I'm out of here soon. I am departing. But I need you to be very clear about what that means and what it doesn't mean. And just as she sees in her children's eyes this defeatist, fatalistic moment, Jesus is going to see that in his disciples' eyes, and he is there, like her, to reassure them. To reassure them of this. His going is not an ending. Death is in the storyline of Rebecca and Jesus' worlds. Jesus' storyline, a little bit different from Rebecca's. But there's a shared poignancy and a shared attempt to look us all in the eye and to make very clear certain things that even in the departing, even in that ending, Thing, not everything is ending, and we must grapple with that. In fact, Jesus will say, it is better that he goes. And we hear that, and we wonder, how in the world could it be better that you are not here as you have been so far? That's our burden. What does it make the slightest difference to you and to me? That's our challenge. Why is it better? I'm going to talk about that under three heads here. It's better that the Spirit come after he depart because, one, it expands Jesus' reach. It's going to make Jesus' case. I know, that's cryptic. What does he mean? And finally, it's going to refine Jesus' church. He is. He will expand his reach. He will make his case, and he will refine his church. That's why it's better. What does that mean? What does it mean for you? That's our burden. So we're in John chapter 16. We'll start in verse 1. I wonder if you could stand, focus your attention. We'll see what we can find. John chapter 16, we'll start in verse 1. I've settled these things to you to keep you from falling away. They'll put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, an hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I didn't say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And when he comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they don't believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because they go to the Father. You'll see me no longer. 
concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he won't speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he'll speak. And he'll declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. And therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit. He gathers them, and he says, I have longed to have this meal with you. He's talking about the the Lord's Supper that he will soon inaugurate. But uh, along the time of celebration about the Passover, but also of what is coming to him, there's this undercurrent of sobriety. And he is, uh, like any uh, good firearms expert who is trying to teach you how to use a shotgun, if you you don't have it tightly brought into your, uh, you know, the nape of your shoulder there, the recoil will bruise. The tighter you bring it in, the more you can withstand the recoil. There's going to be a recoil, and you need to be ready for it. And I'm alerting you and warning you that when it comes, you can say, oh yeah, I knew he said that. There's going to be ridicule, there's going to be marginalization, and then there are going to be people who in their malice and their murderous thoughts are going to think they are doing the world a favor if they off you. Now look, here in America... The most you and I might ever experience is eye-rolling, ridicule. Maybe you lose your job. Maybe you get marginalized in some way. That's about it. Our friends in Uganda, whom we talked about and prayed for last week, they know exactly what he's talking about. They are in the crosshairs of people. And those people think it is doing service to the Lord if we kill the students in the school. Promise fulfilled, awful as it sounds. But even as he's saying these things, he he says, look, I I can see it in your eyes. You've heard me say I'm going somewhere, but then in verse 5 you hear him say, I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? In other words, um, why are you not curious when I say uh, that I'm going somewhere? Why are you not interested to know why that might actually be better why is it actually good news for you for me and for the world that i depart why is that good rebecca is telling her children i'm dying and you know that but even in losing me there is much for you still in fact there is more for you still jesus is kind of it's it's in the same ballpark There is actually more for you after I'm gone than if I were to stay. I am going, but I will not be gone. That's the first reason why it's good. I am going, I'm not going to be gone. Verse 7, if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. We said that the ESV there translates that word there, helper, and it's not an incorrect statement. It's just about one petal on the whole flower. He is a helper. He is a counselor. He is a comforter. He is an advocate. The Holy Spirit is all of those things wrapped into one, the third person of the Trinity, the shy one, the one that likes to bring attention to somebody else 
like we had a couple weeks ago with Woody and Andrew up here talking about comping. What's a good comper? The one that plays and accentuates the, the, the soloists such that it accentuates what they're doing but never rivals for their attention. That's what the Holy Spirit is to Jesus. And yet it is better for the Holy Spirit to come because now something is going to happen. That who Jesus was to them for three years, he will continue to be for them just in a different way. His influence will still be there. His presence will still be there. And that influence and that presence will no longer be confined to him being physically present. He has been able to look them in the eye, maybe with tears, maybe with a smile, maybe with sternness, and to be able to communicate ways in which only a mother could say to you. But now even in his departure, that will still be capable for him in the presence of his spirit. There will be something qualitatively, demonstrably similar to him being there in the coming of the Spirit. And in that sense, he is expanding Jesus' reach. He has come to remind them of something that I will be with you in the same way that I was with you for three years physically. And the other benefit of that is this. What I have been for you, now I will be for anyone who ever places their faith in me. And it will not be restricted by whether I'm in within earshot of them. I'm expanding my reach. And that reach is more than just having facts about him. Jesus was a historical figure. He lasted this long. He disrupted this way. And we know him in that right. No, no. The, the Holy Spirit is there to communicate things that are true of him, but in true ways that have an effect on us. Uh, Peter, in his first letter, to the churches that are spread around. He, he speaks of this in 1 Peter 1. He says, Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You just pause with that for a minute and you realize the, the quality he's talking about here is not simply I have an understanding of his reality. It is an understanding of his reality that actually endears me to him. Such that I have this thing that we kind of unpacked last week, this, this thing called joy. This undercurrent, this stability, this ballast, this poise that exists that has absolutely nothing to do with your circumstances. You can be in darkness and in an abyss by all stretches of the imagination. The things that we pray for in our prayer time, all of those things that, that harass you and harangue you, that hold you captive, those things can all be true and it can feel like a weight, but there is still this thing called joy that holds you. And Peter is talking about that, that qualitative understanding of Jesus' reality and his presence that holds you in that moment. This is the Spirit. This is the work of the Spirit. And it expands his reach in those ways, in the way that he does that. Now, okay, that's he doing. I want to illustrate it for you a little bit. Um, raise your hand if you ever saw the film version of Shadowlands about the life of C.S. Lewis. Yeah. It's a wonderful story. The film probably kind of departs at some point from where the stage play goes in some fundamental way, but that's for another sermon. But here's a moment where um, Mr. Whistler... There's one of his students who's um, the bored one in the class who falls asleep during the lecture and gets up because he, this, obviously this class, he releases himself on his own recognizance because the school has nothing to offer him. 
Well, it turns out that Mr. Whistler likes to go to the bookstore and, and use his five-finger discount <laughs> and bring home books. And Lewis one day notices that and humbly goes to Mr. Whistler at his dorm and has this exchange. I hope you don't mind. May I come in? I happened to be in Zackwell's the other day, and I saw you borrow a book. Uh, Steele stole it. Most of these books are stolen. Why not? They're written to be read. At least I read them, which is more than most people do. So you read differently to the rest of us, do you? Yes, I do. I read at night. So nothing breaks me concentration all night sometimes. When I start a new book, my, my hands are shaking, my eyes are jumping ahead. Does he, does he feel the way I've felt? Does he see what I've seen? You know, uh, my father used to say he's a teacher like you. Well, not like you. He's only a village schoolmaster. What was it your father used to say? We read to know we're not alone. The books are him, for him more than words. They are a, an access point to the author. And his capacity to read those things, or rather not his capacity, but his experience of reading those words, is different from the most people way read those books. It's just a story. For him, he's moved by what he finds. That it drives him to read sometimes all night. Look, I, you and I perhaps have had the same experience. Sometimes we'll pick up a word of scripture and it, and it falls on us like it was in a different language. Thud. But there are other moments where we sense that maybe there is something here for us and we didn't know we needed it until we ran our eyes across them. What does it mean to believe in the Holy Spirit? At one level, it is to believe that this. Do you ever sometimes need a prompt to believe that you forgive as you have been forgiven? Do you ever need a word of encouragement in the midst of whatever disappointment you are facing? Do you ever, are you ever desperate for a sense of perspective in the face of sickness, in the face of estrangement, in the face of death. To believe in the Holy Spirit is to believe that you are met. And that it is not upon you to screw up your courage and your faith and to sick this and, and to just sort of just to you know sort of focus your mind and attention until finally it clicks for you. If the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit, then there is a reason to believe that you and I can be met by God in our pursuit of him. Because the Spirit has expanded Jesus' reach. That's one reason why it's good. And that's what he does to us. But what about through us? There's something else that the Spirit, Jesus says, is going to do. 
And let be, let's be frank. Um, let me be frank. Here in, in verse 8, I'll tell you, um, as I read this over and over again, it, there are moments where I felt like I was reading an Ikea assembly manual. Um, what? Um, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit has come to do something, and that when he comes, he has come to, at verse 8, to convict the world, to testify to something, to validate that which Jesus has said. The Holy Spirit will come and will come to the world and convict the world to bring attention to truths and to drive them home. And before we ask ourselves the question, well, how's he going to do that? Who's listening in the world? Let's just talk about first about what does he come to convict the world about? What does he come to testify to this world? He says in verse 8, the Holy Spirit will come and he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Lean in here. I got to unpack these, each of them. I promise I'm going to try to make it practical. But we got to talk about what does he mean by each of those things? Convict the world of sin because they don't believe in me. What is that about? God forbid your house ever gets mold in it. But when they come to remediate the house, if you choose to stay, they will strip the walls, they will scrub and wash everything they can, and try to put things back together again. That's called remediation, so far, insofar as I've ever seen that. But look, you can do all of that. Take down the walls, scrub it all out, vacuum it all out, treat it with all those chemicals you want. But if you haven't found the source of the water that led to the moisture, that led to the promotion of the growth of the mold, what are you doing you haven't gotten to the source of the problem. You and I, groups, families, cultures, societies, when it comes to societal ills and problems, we are notorious for doing everything but get to the source of it. We love to blame certain constituencies. They're the problem. Because that sort of takes the onus off of us and it kind of oversimplifies the world we find ourselves in. We scapegoat. We treat symptoms rather than causes. We love to do that. It's easy to do that. Jesus is going to come and convict the world of sin because they don't believe, because they don't believe in me. What he's saying is this. The Spirit is going to testify to the world that they are wrong about what is most wrong. There are plenty of things that we can point to. Crises about immigration, about health care, about the disparity between rich and poor, any number of things. And we will come up with credible solutions to those problems. But how many times do people really try to back up and go, what is the bigger picture? What's at the headwaters? You've all heard the story maybe of, of, of G.K. Chesterton. He was an author of the 19th century. He was a, he was a Brit. And an English newspaper put out a, a, an inquiry to readers saying, write us an essay and, and, and answer this question. What's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton, who writes prolifically and voluminously all the time, he, wrote, he, wrote, he entered the essay contest by writing one sentence. Uh, Dear sir, what is wrong with the world? I am. I am. 150 years earlier, James Madison writes in the Federalist Papers, under a pseudonym. And he says, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. And so the, the founders of this country, they kind of do jujitsu on human nature. 
At least these guys, for all of their foibles, for all of their contradictions in saying certain things and then creating a world in which it was very different for a lot of different people, at least they knew that what was at the heart of the problem was self-interest. And so you create structures that somehow do jujitsu on that human nature and maybe you could protect. And now even institutions, they've been overcome by corruption. And Okay, that's another sermon. Look, N.S. Lyons, I only heard about him in the last year. He's a cultural analyst, he's an author, and he doesn't let his picture be published anywhere. But in a recent um, interview he did with someone who was a Roman Catholic, he, he was honest. He's not a person of faith. He has respect for people of faith. He has no place for faith. But he said this, honestly, he said, I've had to conclude that at bottom our civilization's crisis is first and foremost a spiritual crisis. And that the great struggles underlying our present upheavals are really struggles over essentially theological questions. He's only saying what Jesus is saying about how the Spirit is going to come and convict the world of sin. What's wrong? What's wrong is that in every single issue that you and I might talk about or hear about on podcasts or the evening news, what's at the headwaters of that is what you found at the headwaters of Eden. Two folks saying to God, we've got this, thanks. We're competent, we'll take care of it. And as soon as they asserted their autonomy and their self, they become a danger to other selves. And the Spirit has come to convict the world of what's wrong, how it's wrong about what's wrong. But it's also, Jesus says, the Spirit's also come to convict the world about righteousness, because I'm going to the Father. Again, Jesus, what do you mean, man? Elaborate, come on. Jesus will have said a lot of things before he's crucified. Among those, he'll say, I and the Father are one. <gasps> Big words, man of no reputation and no credentials. You know, extreme claims require extreme verification, says Carl Sagan. And then he'll get crucified, and all of his disciples who sat around the table with him there, having the little heart-to-heart -heart moment, they'll think, um, I guess we misunderstood. Or he's sort of like, he was confused in himself. And, and everybody that despised Jesus looked at him and go, you're either a fool or a fiend. That's what they thought. And then a few days later, peekaboo, here I am. And all bets are off now. All bets are off. You thought... <laughs> what you thought, now you're wrong. And it changes the equation, right? Now his words that he'd spoken before he died, and now the words he's speaking after he died, they take on a certain credibility that maybe is different. And what he proves in that moment, if he's risen, is that he and the Father are one. That's a pretty good claim, and I have reason to believe that it might be true. In which case, I believe that Jesus represents for me a picture and a model of what it means to be righteous. In other words, a model and a picture of what it means to be human and what it means to be fully alive. He is the model of that. He is the example of that. In him is righteousness. To him we aspire. But if you know the gospel, you know this. He may be a model of righteousness. He may be an example of righteousness. But if that's all he is to us, that's nice. I'll never be him. And Jesus says, not yet. 
before he can ever be a model, before he can ever be an example, he has to be the one to reconcile us to the Father through whatever he did. So not only is he a picture or an example of righteousness, he's the path to it. And the only path to it is through his grace. That's the gospel. If you've never heard it before, that's the gospel. He's Lord, but before he can be Lord, he's got to rescue you. And he's got to do it at his own cost. That's righteous in itself, that you and I might walk in his righteous way. That's what he's come to convict the world of. Everybody's got a claim about what it means to be good, what it means to be alive, what it means to be righteous. There are 30,000 competing theories on this one. Jesus says the Spirit will come to testify to the world that what we see in Jesus, there's your embodiment of righteousness and your path to it through him, through his grace and his mercy. A path to righteousness that is through failure, through confession and repentance. And lastly, he's come to convict the world of judgment because the accuser has been judged. If sin is a real thing and it holds us captive to what we are and yet the judgment that we deserve falls on Jesus, then at the same time that the judgment falls on the accuser and therefore the accuser has no claim on us anymore. There is no place for him to say, do you know what he did? Have you looked into his heart? And Jesus says, yes, paid for. Can we go now? Those three things, convicting the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. The, the Spirit is out to testify to the world about those things. And it's at this point you're starting to go to yourself, How? How? If, if most people don't want to listen to anything about this and find what we're doing right now something that you just need to keep to yourselves and don't let it get outside of these walls and please don't think it has any public implications for your life, politics, law, etc. Just keep it to yourself. If most people don't, then how will the Spirit convict the world of any of those things? I will tell you. It's through you. Oh, no. <laughs> you become the testimony. You become the demonstration of what the Spirit is out to communicate to the world. And does that mean I walk around and I go on all the talk shows and, I, and they ask me, what's wrong with the world? And you say, it's sin. Like, is that, is, is that what you're going to do? Hmm. Let me suggest to you very practical ways in which this applies to you. Because before the Spirit can ever convince the world of these things through you, he's got to convince you first. And I will tell you that if you must convince and convict me of sin... You know what practical implication of that is? You and I are really good about looking out in the world and go, oh my gosh, what carnage. Look at all of them, fools. If he's out to convict me of sin, then anything that I might see in the world, friends, that exists in you too. You just won't admit it. Everything that you see wrong with the world, in fact, you're particularly primed to see what's wrong in the world because of what lurks within you that you won't admit. Humility will be one way we convince the world that this might be true. That whole righteousness thing, that sometimes we think, well, gosh, it's just a bunch of rules. Why do I have to do that? No, it's wisdom. It's life. You walk in that way, that has an effect. People notice. 
And righteousness is not simply, you all have a problem, I'm looking down my nose at you, but acknowledging that I'm humble and that I'm in need of him and I walk in his way and people go, ah, how do you, wh- why? Humility and holiness that you embody, that convinces the world. And then finally, hope. If the accuser has been judged and I belong to him because of his love, because of his grace, because of his mercy, that allows me to face a lot differently than if I'm just relying upon the things that help me avoid regret. George Valiant was a sociologist at Harvard. Ever heard of Harvard? It's kind of been in the news. For 30 years, he tracked, I don't remember how many folks in a cohort, to figure out what allowed them to face their world with resilience. What adaptive behaviors did they have to be able to face anything that kind of came their way? And, you know, people have picked up that baton a lot, and now you hear words like grit and, I don't know, Tiger Mom, whatever she was talking about in that book several years ago. These, things, these capacities that we, that we seek, that we want, that allow us to face anything that might come our way. And everybody's got a theory about how it comes from. And so George Valiant writes this book, and he followed these guys for like 30 years, and some of them are in their 90s now, and he discovered that there are certain traits that they all manifested that allowed them to face whatever came their way. And, and here's five of them, and I'm not going to go through all of them. Some of them have to do with altruism, about thinking of somebody else. Others thought about humor, being able to see the comedy in something. Some of these things had to do with how you regulated your own emotions, frustrations, sorrows, disappointments, and how you face them. One had to do with anticipation, living with hope. Those are all the features of a, of a life that was resilient. And everybody's got to come up with their strategies to develop those. Friends, let me just ask you a question. Do we not have a better resource to motivate altruism than in the love of Jesus Christ? Do we not have a better reason to be able to find the humor in ourselves by regulating, I think there's a lot of corruption in the world, but you have, I am despicable, and we should laugh. You know, Jack Miller, cheer up, you're worse than you think. <laughs> Do we not have a better resource to regulate those emotions and frustrations than the belief that you are beloved? Yeah, it's practical, and I hope I'm even close to what Jesus means by the what, why it's beneficial for the Spirit to come, but that's how the Spirit comes. And that's what the Spirit's out to manifest and do a work in us. That we become those who convict the world of those things only because we first be convicted of it in ourselves. One last thing he does. He is there to make Jesus' point. He's there to expand Jesus' reach. But he's also there to to refine Jesus' church. When the helper comes, he will guide you into all the truth. They've heard plenty. They're going to have to stew and simmer on a lot of that. But there's going to be all sorts of events and circumstances that they're going to need to have that, those things that he's taught him applied into places and spaces that they had no idea. Peter, a good Jew, followed the Jewish Savior for three years has certain deductions he makes about Gentiles, the great unwashed, the deplorables, whatever they might have been. And he has this, up on a roof, has this vision, hello, comes down a 4th of July picnic, you know, there's the fried chicken, there's the watermelon, and a lot of other 
food that they don't eat. Okay, but it's probably not fried chicken. And, and he hears a voice, take and eat. And Peter says, ah, ha, ha, ha. Ah, this is a trick, isn't it? Where's the camera? And he says, don't call anything unclean that I've made clean. And within hours, who shows up? A, a, a Gentile Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius. What's going on in that moment? The spirit is there to, com, com, to help tease out for Peter what Jesus meant by, I have sheep that are not of this flock. They're going to become part of my flock. Peter tells that story. The Acts, in Acts 15, the Jerusalem council, they go, I guess God already always had in mind the Gentiles. Sure enough, go back and check the tape in the Old Testament. We'd forgotten the spirits that are remind. And every bit of those moments, you hear the Jerusalem council saying, it seemed good to us in the Holy Spirit. There is a sense of discernment unto what the Lord is doing through the agency of the Holy Spirit. Which should make all of us in this room a little bit sobered by those who lead the church and those who lead their own lives and their own families. Is there a sense in which you and I ever pause to consider how the Spirit might be exerting his agency and his influence in a given moment? There's plenty of things to read. There's reflection to be done. There's conversation to be had. And it's not as if the Spirit can't function in those acts also. But is there ever a place in which we go, Let's, we should pray? <laughs> You know, when in, when in doubt, check the manual. If he leads and guides in that way. One of you asked in the email when we sent out to you if, uh, questions you have about it. By the way, you can still ask questions. That's the spirit, gmr at gmail.com. Is the Holy Spirit um, really just a deep intuition in me? Great question, right? Yes, and I'm not sure. Does the Spirit ever act in ways that feels like there's a deep voice working? Sure, but you always have to, in the words of John, test the Spirit's. Whatever God might be saying to you through the Spirit has to be checked against this, checked against the understanding and reflection of the church, just to make sure that you're not trusting the deep intuition that is influenced by things that you are barely aware of. And the essential litmus test for all of it is what Jesus says the Spirit's come to do. Does it glorify Jesus? Does it glorify him? Does it make him look beautiful? When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth and he will glorify me for he will take what is mine and it un declare it unto you. The spirit is there not just to remind you of certain things that he said, but to make an impression upon you for what he says. The punchline, I think of the passage of this sermon is this. It is better that Jesus goes and the Holy Spirit comes because then you can depend on Jesus for more than just words and insight and example. You can depend on him for help. I have to depend on him for help. Not just as a figure behind glass or on a wall in a painting in two dimensions. And that's why, look, Rebecca is looking at her children and with tears in her eyes, in a way only a mother's love can, she says... I want you to shift your focus. I know you will want to put the focus on me. Don't. What is Jesus by the Spirit saying unto us? The more that you shift your focus upon yourself, your good, whether you're getting it right or whether you're not doing it wrong, cut it out. Let your focus be upon Jesus. The extent to which he is mostly in frame rather than your own neurotic world that overburdens your rhetoric with ostentatious erudition? 
The more he is in view, the more life that is found. And how do you live fearlessly like Rebecca tells her children? There might be a lot of things that he might say to you, but they will never be without this. In him you are forgiven. By him you will be resurrected. And in him you have a love that is everlasting. Those are ideas. You've probably heard them before. You will need the Spirit to reconfirm them to you as often as you need. I'll end with this. The, one of the Massachusetts flags from the colonial era was a pine tree atop which it said, Appeal to Heaven, which was a shot across the British crown because it's a line from John Locke who's coming after the idea of the divine right of kings as if to say, I don't need no king to be able to appeal to heaven. He lets me come. I already have a king. He lives in heaven. I can appeal to heaven in that way. Friends, if you and I are going to believe in the Holy Spirit, we have to appeal to the Spirit to remind us and persuade us and to impress upon us forgiven, resurrected, and beloved in whatever circumstance you find yourself. And that's how we believe. Let's pray. Whatever we need in this hour, we ask that you would meet us. Whatever we've been forgetful of, blunted to, we pray that you would awaken us to things where a peace reigns that we can't explain, and I guess we don't need to. Father, we are um, full of sin, full of distraction, full of an overconfidence in our ability to navigate our lives and our relationships and our aspirations with wisdom. We are in need of one to convict and to console, to confront and to encourage, and we would pray that your spirit would be that for us, quiet us that we might hear and heed in Jesus' name. Amen.